a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, here we go. Off and running, it is Friday, the 10th of July. And once again, thanks for joining us here on The Brian Hyde Show. Man, this year just never stops giving, does it? I mean, last night, uh, apparently riots in downtown Salt Lake City and... Uh, you know, the, the continued upheaval going on. We're going to spend some time talking about a few of the things that are taking place. And, and, and I got to warn you right up front. Uh, some of this is, uh, you know, well, it sucks. It's, it's not like, yeah, and then, uh, you know, the economy recovered and, uh, you know, we wiped out COVID-19. And everything went back to normal. I have nothing that resembles that to share with you today. But what we are going to talk about are a couple of things that are going on and hopefully... Uh, get some clarity, not only on, on what's going on in the world, but what you and I could and should be doing about it. I'm going to spend some time this hour discussing cancel culture. And there's a reason that I want to do this, and it's not to get you riled up against the cancel culture censors. I, I do think what they're doing is, uh, it's well, it's ugly. It's petty. It's, it's, it's the, the symptom of what small souls would do, and that is if you hear something that, that does not jive with your point of view, you try to cancel it. You, you try to destroy someone, either uh, you know, their career or just their ability to earn a living, or you, know, you try to smear their reputation, whatever it is. That's not what people who are, are living productive lives would be doing, but it's happening. And, and the reason I want to share some thoughts with you on it today is because I think that there are a good lot of a good bunch of folks, and I mean good people, who aren't out to cause any kind of trouble. You're not out there to oppress anybody or deny, you know, people justice. You just want to be left alone. I think actually this describes most of us, but you cannot find a place to hide from cancel culture. If you think you can avoid the cancel culture mob, I'm sorry, there is nowhere left to hide. They will find you. They will seek you out. There, even staying silent isn't going to be enough to keep you out of harm's way. They'll find you. They will force you to kneel at their altar and to renounce everything that you knew from before. So it's worth understanding what exactly they are up to, how they are going about their crusade to, uh, to bring free speech under their control. So that free speech more closely resembles whatever the cancel culture crowd or mob wants it to resemble. We have options. But before we get to that, let's talk about education. Yesterday in my home state of Utah, Governor Gary Herbert uh, stopped short of issuing a statewide mandate that uh, everybody should wear masks while in public and it, you know this is a, this is a huge issue this is a very strong point of contention for lots of people and for lots of different reasons but one place where he did not hold back was he said however within utah's public schools everyone within those schools teachers administrators students parents if you come there to conduct any kind of business with your your kids teachers you're going to have to be wearing a mask and 
I think I saw a threshold crossed. And this is just, you know, from what I saw from folks on my Facebook feed. And I understand Facebook's algorithms try to feed you things that most likely are going to agree with you. So this could just be, you know, some of the echo chamber effect that I'm seeing. But I saw a lot of folks, prominent people that I'm friends with on Facebook who, you know, they're very freedom oriented, but haven't really drawn a hard line before. I saw more hard lines being drawn yesterday that I've seen in a long time. And by hard lines, I mean, th- these are parents who are just stepping up going, well, this seals it. The governor's mandate means that uh, I am going to have to do something different than send my kids back to school this fall. Now, I'm going to confess, I have a little bit of a vested interest in, in this because my wife is a public school teacher. And so I'm looking at this and thinking, whoo, what does this mean for the future of public education? I mean, they've adapted in many ways. The The last part of uh, the last school year, it was interesting, to put it mildly, but there were some people who adapted well and, and uh, overcame, you know, the obstacles of people having to be at home and having to, you know, school by video and whatnot. And there were others that just simply, I don't know, I guess maybe didn't throw their hands in the air, but just they stopped trying. The students just, nah, I'm at home. I don't have to do this. So it seems like we're standing at a little bit of a crossroads. And I'm a little bit surprised by the number of people that I am seeing now, at least within my circle of of influence, that appear to be leaning towards homeschool or some kind of uh, non-send-them-to-school alternative. Carrie McDonald, who is one of my favorite commentators on education, has a terrific article that uh, was published recently. I just picked this one up off of intellectualtakeout.org. The title is Back to School. No thanks, say millions of new homeschoolers. Here's what she reports. Kerry says next month marks the beginning of the 2020-2021 academic year in several U.S. states. And the pressure's mounting to reopen schools even as the COVID-19 pandemic persists. Florida, for example, is now considered the nation's number one hotspot for the virus. Yet on Monday, the state's education commissioner issued an executive order mandating that all Florida schools open in August with in-person learning and their full suite of student services. Huh. She says many parents are balking at back to school, choosing instead to homeschool their children this fall. Now, Carrie McDonald says, gratefully, this virus seems to be sparing most children and with prominent medical organizations such as the American Academy of Pediatrics uh, have urged schools to reopen this fall with in-person learning. But for some parents, fear of the virus itself is a primary consideration in delaying a child's return to school. And that's especially if the child has direct contact with individuals who are most vulnerable to COVID-19's worst effects. But she says for many parents, it's not the virus they're avoiding by keeping their kids at home. It's the response to the virus. And this is what I was seeing on my Facebook feed in spades yesterday. Parents who are saying, I'm not so worried about my kid, you know, getting sick. I'm worried about the infection of what fear is doing to the people in positions of authority and how they are choosing to react to it. Carrie McDonald says in May, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or the CDC, issued school reopening guidelines that called for strict social distancing tactics, all day mask wearing for most students and teachers, staggered attendance, daily health checks, no gym or cafeteria use, restricted playground access and limited toy sharing, and tight controls on visitors to school buildings, including parents. School districts, once a, a school districts across the country, she says, quickly adopted 
the CDC guidelines, devising their reopening plans accordingly. But once parents got wind of what the upcoming school year would look like, including the real possibility that any time schools could be shut down again due to virus spikes, that's when a lot of parents started exploring other options. Like Florida mother Rachel Cohen, these social distancing expectations and pandemic response measures prompted her to commit to homeschooling her children ages 13, 8, and 5 this fall. Cohen told Carrie McDonald in a recent interview, mandated masks as well as rigid and arbitrary rules and requirements regarding the use and location of their bodies will serve to dehumanize, disconnect, and intimidate students. And so that leaves Rachel Cohen endeavoring to expand schooling alternatives in her area and working to create a self-directed learning community for local homeschoolers that emphasizes nature-based experiential education. In fact, she says there's quite a lot of interest. Well, according to a recent USA Today Ipsos poll, 60% of the parents they surveyed said they will likely choose at-home learning this fall rather than send their children to school, even if the schools reopen for in-person learning. 30% of the parents surveyed said they were very likely to keep their children home. Now, Carrie says while some of these parents may opt for an online version of school at home tied to their district, many states are actually seeing a surge in the number of parents withdrawing their children from school in favor of independent homeschooling. And she says from coast to coast and everywhere in between, more parents are opting out of conventional schooling this year, citing onerous social distancing requirements as a primary reason. In fact, so many parents submitted notices of intent to homeschool in North Carolina last week, it actually crashed the state's non-public education website. Other parents are choosing to delay their children's school enrollment. School districts across the the country reporting lower-than-average kindergarten registration numbers this summer. And school officials, in response, are cracking down. Concerned about declining enrollments and parents reassuming control over their children's education, some school districts are reportedly trying to block parents from removing their their kids from school for homeschooling. Interesting. In England, it's even worse, says Kerry. Government officials there are so worried about parents refusing to send their children back to school this fall that the education secretary just announced fines for families who keep their children home in violation of compulsory schooling laws. Well, that creates a little bit of a quandary, wouldn't you say? All right, we've got to take a quick break. We will do so, and we'll be back just the other side of these messages. is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back. And thanks for joining us on The Brian Hyde Show today. Just was sharing an article from Carrie McDonald. This was on intellectualtakeout.org. Back to school, no thanks. Say millions of new homeschoolers. And I don't know, maybe yesterday's response that I was seeing on Facebook to Utah Governor Gary Herbert's mandate saying, well, you know, as far as Utah public schools are concerned, every person in those school buildings will be required, mandated to wear a mask. And this is this is the first time in recent memory that I can recall a lot of people saying, "Okay, that was the line in the sand. That was where they just drew the line there and said no more. 
and there's a lot of look there's a lot of different uh takes that people can have on this i don't think this is truly a one size fits all proposition you know my wife is a public school teacher the prospect of spending the whole day teaching in a mask is is very daunting to her and she's not a person who's necessarily opposed to wearing a mask i mean we go to the store she's okay with putting on a mask she's okay with with uh, you know putting it on um for for reasons of you know what it's the message it conveys to other people look i'm i'm looking out for you i'm trying to protect you um, I take a different view, as you may have surmised, <laughs> but nonetheless, it's asking a lot. And for some parents, it's just too much. And just a couple final thoughts here from Carrie's article. She says, when school officials resort to force in order to ensure compliance, whether it's making kids mask up or social distance or, you know, banning recess or whatever, or simply trying to prevent parents from leaving public schooling, She says it should prompt parents to look more closely at their child's overall learning environment. Because parents have the utmost interest in ensuring their children's well-being, both physically and emotionally. And their choices and their concerns should be respected and honored. But she says after several months of learning at home with their children, parents may not be so willing to comply with district directives and they may prefer other, more individualized education options. Pushed into homeschooling this spring by the pandemic, many parents are now willingly and eagerly going down this increasingly popular educational path. Now, I don't want to sound like I'm just piling on here because, again, it's, you know, we, uh, we have kind of a complicated relationship with, uh, with public schooling in my home. We have done the whole gamut. We've homeschooled, we have private schooled, we've charter schooled, and now my wife is a public school teacher. And I can see advantages in every single one of them, depending on the situation. Some kids respond better to a more structured environment. Some of them are better in a more uh, free environment or less institutional environment, I guess I should say. But the bottom line is there is great opportunity here. Someone who can come up with a good, scalable model that can help uh, parents who are experiencing homeschooling for the first time really make you know their their uh make their efforts feel like they're they're having impact and that they're they're meeting the needs of their kids as far as their educational needs the person who can put together some kind of a system that helps parents accomplish that without it being one size fits all is going to do a lot of good and they're probably going to get very rich in the process I know there are people who are working on this, and and again, I'm not going to suggest that, boy, just everybody ought to sign up for this. It may not be right for everybody. But if there's one thing I'm grateful for, it's the fact that people are actually looking at alternatives. It's a shame that it took what I consider very serious government overreach to get people to that point where they would consider it. I've asked the question many times over the year, what would it take What would it take for people to put their foot down and say, okay, this is crossing the line and we just cannot allow this to go any further? I think we may have got the answer here, at least in part. And in my home state of Utah, very clearly, that's uh, that's the answer that a lot of people were looking for as of uh, yesterday. All right. Going to shift gears here. Now I want to talk about uh, something. This is an article from Annie Holmquist from intellectualtakeout.org. And this gets to the heart of a discussion that I have actually been having regularly with a number of people. The title of this is, Does Fighting for Freedom Save Lives or Lose Them? Now, you probably already know, I absolutely find purpose in 
standing for freedom, not just, you know, waving the flag, yay, freedom, but actually helping people understand and, and, and appreciate the principles and practices upon which freedom is predicated. Because let's face it, if you do not live up to the standards required of a free people, you will not be free. You can't be lazy. You can't be irresponsible. You cannot outsource everything to government and expect to remain a free people. This is an object lesson that has been right in front of our eyes now for many generations. But sadly, a lot of folks have been very slow to learn it. And they've been even slower to understand that if our freedoms are to be maintained or, heaven forbid, even expanded, it requires very serious effort on the part of those willing to carry that, you know, torch of liberty forward. And that's something that a lot of people don't want to do because you get labeled as a radical. You get uh, you're misunderstood, you're misrepresented. And that's not something a lot of folks are comfortable with. But now in the age of covid-19 and whether we're talking about masks or we're talking about other official, you know, social distancing measures or just simply how should we address this problem? People who stand up for freedom are quickly becoming regarded as selfish. How could you be so selfish? And you'll hear terms like the greater good. You know, the collective is asserting its its will and its authority, and the individual needs to shut up and be subjugated to that, that collective will. And for me, that's where I draw the line. And I say, nope, I'll take the dangers that come and the risks that come with exercising freedom over the peaceful and allegedly safe results that come from submitting to top-down centralized collective control. Now, I understand there's nuance here. But getting back to Annie Holmquist's question, does fighting for freedom save lives or lose them? She says, over the weekend, while keeping one eye on the weeds in my garden and the other on the news, I noticed an interesting trend. The media is slowly backing away from its dire coronavirus predictions. She says the first indication of this came via the New York Times. Reporter Catherine J. Wu, who holds a Ph.D. in microbiology and immunobiology from Harvard, starts her piece by proclaiming the old line that coronavirus cases are rising in certain southern states, but then makes a major admission in her second paragraph. Quote, the virus appears to be killing fewer of the people it infects, end quote. And Annie Holmquist says she notes while deaths measured at 3,000 per day in the uh, that while deaths measured at 3,000 per day in the spring months, the number of daily deaths now is closer to 600. Of course, she notes such good news may not be permanent. She leaves readers with the cliffhanger of the United States may be verging on another wave of deaths. And Annie Holmquist says, I agree. No one knows what the future holds. But if one of the largest publications in the mainstream media is extending cautious optimism, I'll take it. She says, a while later, I came across an article from another mainstream media publication proclaiming scolding beachgoers isn't helping. And Annie says she thought to herself, this is unusual. Continuing to read the Atlantic article, which suggests that the beach is actually one of the safest places for people to be. Outdoors, social distancing, enjoying the albeit limited human fellowship that many of us have been longing for. And that scolding those who take advantage of this is simply wrong. The author notes, quote, when we scold, people stop listening, especially when they figure out that the scolding isn't evidence based and they eventually will. When authorities close parks and beaches without strong scientific evidence, socializing may well, may well move out of sight to more dangerous settings indoors, end quote. At this, Annie Holmquist says, 
I can't help but wonder if these two articles signal a change in direction. Is the mainstream media, like many of us watching the numbers and doing the math ourselves, beginning to see the same thing? Namely, that continuing to scare Americans into the need for continued lockdowns simply doesn't add up any longer. Now, she says it's good to be careful. It's good to be thoughtful of others and concerned about their lives. Many calls for caring about life over liberties have been issued during this time. We should continue caring about life as we come out of this bout of COVID-19, as we will likely face another in future months. But... Does our care and concern for life require us to push concerns for our freedoms and liberties aside? She says, I've been thinking about this question a lot lately, and I'm beginning to think the answer is no. Namely, because concern, a concern and a strong, respectful stand in favor of our liberties will eventually lead to a much lower loss of life. We'll continue just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. Okay, once again, we are back. I'm finishing up on an article here from Annie Holmquist from intellectualtakeout.org. Does fighting for freedom save lives or lose them? Oh, man, the angry responses that I have received in uh, response to a column that I wrote a couple of weeks ago for a publication in southern Utah suggesting that, you know, when it comes to uh, approaching, you know, for instance, I, I use the idea of, of masking. Instead of sitting there and, and shaming each other and guilting each other and threatening each other, by gosh, I'll be calling the police if I see you without a mask and I'll, I'll have video evidence, you know. What if we just respected one another's ability to weigh the odds? Weigh the evidence, assess the risks for ourselves, and then decide what is the most appropriate course of action. See, to me, that's a very rational way to approach it. But uh, for some people, and I'm assuming it's people with some kind of control issues, they don't think that even begins to cover it. It's you're selfish. You just you just want to be free to do anything you want, even if it's hurting other people. This, of course, with absolutely no evidence whatsoever that someone is being hurt. I think it's purely fear-driven, but this is a legitimate question. And, and as Annie Holmquist says, does our care for or, and concern for life require us to push the concerns for freedom and liberties aside? She says, I'm, I've been thinking about this question. I think the answer is no, mainly because a concern and strong, respectful stand in favor of our liberties eventually leads to a much lower loss of life. Now, I can hear you ask, okay, Why? How can that be? She says, well, consider the types of ideologies and governments to which losses of freedom eventually lead. Communism, fascism, anarchy. She says, let's take communism alone. After years of communist rule, people in the Soviet Union struggled with poor life expectancy and high mortality rates, likely exacerbated by the nation's poor health care system. Besides poor health care, though, countless accounts of brutality, cruel killings, and even poor living conditions have emerged from those who lived under Soviet rule. Russell Kirk, in The Roots of American Order, wrote, Communism, fascism, and anarchism are some of the most powerful ideologies. And Annie Holmquist clarifies, Ideologies function as inverted religions where people operate in servitude to political dogmas. Holy cow, do you see that today? And thus, according to Russell Kirk, the simplistic appeal of ideological slogans continues to menace the most humane social orders of our time. 
It is the higher order or the higher kind of order, Kirk notes, that declares the dignity of man and which is sheltering freedom and justice. Indeed, she says, as Kirk later explains, this attachment to certain enduring principles of order has done much to preserve America from the confused and violent change that plagues most modern nations. So Annie Holmquist concludes, it seems this higher kind of order is the type of society many of us have lived in and would love to see continue for generations to come. A society where freedom flourishes and citizens are preserved from violent chaos. But she asks, will such a society continue if freedom is not allowed to flourish? And if we suppress freedom, will we only be hurting the many lives we claim to hold dear by allowing repressive ideologies to rush in and fill the gap? Wow. I'll have this posted in the show notes. Again, it's worth your time. Read it for yourself. Share it with others if you think it makes sense. I think Annie Holmquist hits the nail right on the head, though. And if if I haven't been clear on this before, then let me go ahead and, and put my cards on the table and make it clear now. My stand for individual freedom is based less in a need to rebel against uh, centralized authority and more with a long-term perspective on what happens when we allow this encroachment to take hold and become the new normal, even in the sake of expediency, even for the sake of, well, you know, we have to do this because there's a dangerous disease going on. No, I get it. I get it. There's, there's, there's danger. There's uncertainty. And for a lot of people, that is where freedoms become less important to them than the security of knowing, am I going to be safe? Will someone tell me what to do or I don't know, you know where this is all leading? I have a little bit different mindset. And my mindset is that life, or I guess I should just say existing, but in the absence of freedom, is really not much of a life. In fact, it's a pretty, pretty crappy consolation prize, if you ask me, just to, to well, we survived. Yeah, but you're living in, in shackles. Yeah, so, so we are, but at least we're alive. I don't think I want to live as a slave. I certainly don't want to live as some kind of a fearful subject, you know, waiting for someone in authority to tell me what I must next do. And I don't care whether there's something scary going on or not. That's the whole idea about inalienable rights, natural rights. They exist and they predate any form of man-made government. And the whole purpose for man-made government, if you subscribe to John Locke, if you subscribe to what uh, Thomas Jefferson wrote in the Declaration of Independence, if you subscribe to the mindset that the founders had that government exists for the purpose of protecting those natural rights, guaranteeing that they will not be infringed upon then you have to reject the idea that uh, that's, that's only when things are going well, because in times of emergency, that's when people who are tempted to abuse power are going to be most eager to abuse that power. So it may be unpopular, but I'm no stranger to, uh, you know, taking a stand on unpopular issues. It hurts the first few times someone really publicly disagrees with you or, you know, questions your motives or accuses you of some nefarious goal simply because you are standing for principles which somehow have gone out of fashion. And I don't know why they become so angry and in some cases so vehement, you know, the, to where, uh, you know, that you, you get hated. You, you experience real full-on hate. But that is uh, the price that has to be paid. And it has always been so. And there have always been individuals who are willing to, to pay that price. 
You look at what the signers of the Declaration of Independence put on the line. It wasn't just, well, you know, and uh, in the in subject to being called names or anything like that they were called traitors, meaning that had the king been able to get his hands on them, they would have been hung by the neck until dead. That's what they were putting on the line. Lives, fortunes, sacred honor for what they believed was a moral truth. And that is that God gives us our rights or our creator endows us with those natural rights. And government, at least legitimate government, exists only for the purpose of protecting and guaranteeing those rights. And when it stops doing that, it loses its legitimacy. And the people not only are within their legitimate moral rights to withdraw their consent, but they actually have a duty to do so with the understanding that uh, those who want to assert control over them probably aren't just going to go, oh, well, you know, and shrug their shoulders and let them go. As King George did, that was it was fighting time. He sent more troops. He sent more of his soldiers there to compel them by force to do what he said. And we've seen this in much smaller ways throughout the whole COVID crisis, you know, with police arresting people for going to the gym, arresting people for opening their businesses, arresting people for walking on the beach. That's not the kind of thing you want to allow to become the new normal. You don't want that to become normalized and accepted as, well, that's just what we have to do during dangerous times. And so this this call to push back, I know for some people it just it sounds so thoughtless. And so how can you not care about people? Take a little bit longer point of view or a little bit longer perspective in terms of where does this lead? And when you can do that, you'll find that the people who are standing for freedom, the ones who are making that principled stand, the ones who are sometimes being led away in handcuffs because they will not obey these uh, immoral dictates of governors or mayors or health officials, they are looking out for the longer-term happiness and safety and the, the life quality of people yet unborn as well as people who don't even appreciate their freedoms at this moment. Look, I'm going to make a prediction, and I know this is going to sound very self-serving, but I don't feel like I'm one of those people who really has paid a price, okay? I, I say things, and sometimes people agree, and sometimes people disagree. So about the worst thing that's happened to me is someone will call me names. Oh, boy. I'll try not to lose too much sleep at night over that. But I have seen people who have put a lot on the line to stand up for freedom. And they pay a pretty heavy price. And I think the day is going to come when those people who are most strident right now about how selfish the, the, the people who are standing for freedom are and how, how wrong they are and how uncaring and how dangerous and they should be punished and they should be brought into line and they should be forced to comply. The people who advocate that authoritarian mindset are going to hang their heads in shame at some point. And it may be in the halls of eternity. It may be a long time from now. But I predict we're going to recognize how utterly fearful and irrational we allowed our society to become and how willing we were to squander what had been purchased with the effort and the blood, sweat, and tears of great men and women who came before us. And we'll rightly hang our heads in shame for casually throwing away something or recklessly throwing away something that others had paid such a dear price for. We don't see it now because we're, you know, trapped in this this fearful attitude. But that's my prediction and I'll stand by it. The day will come and we will regret what we've allowed to happen. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm glad you could find this gathering place for people who have accepted the truth that they are not sheep. And I hope that if you find value in the messages that you hear day in and day out on this program, that you'll share it with other people. Just let them know. I may not have all the answers, but I promise you there's enough outside the box thinking here. You can find something of value that uh, will hopefully expand your understanding of the world. And who knows, maybe move that needle in the right direction towards a little more independent thought, a little uh, better understanding of what's going on around us. And most importantly, encouragement that you can make a difference no matter where you are standing. Let's take a few minutes here to talk about cancel culture. I've got three articles that I'll have in the show notes here. I encourage you to check them all out, see what they're about, and, and you know, dig into this yourself. Have you heard about the article published by Harper's Magazine? Actually, it was an open letter published by Harper's Magazine and calling for uh, a, a principled stand against cancel culture. And if you don't know what cancel culture is, look, the easiest explanation I can think of is cancel culture is that uh, that crazy um, you said something that someone disagrees with. So it is now our duty to put you to the to the rack or to otherwise destroy you. We're going to we're going to punish you for for speaking ideas or for having a point of view that someone somewhere finds disagreeable. It's a really it's 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 a very uh, dark kind of uh, mentality but 153 different uh, prominent uh, thinkers and writers and and influencers signed this letter and the reaction to that letter holy cow did it ever get people just riled up i know uh, reason magazine um jesse signal Singal, that is, had a terrific article on why the reaction to the Harper's letter on cancel culture proves it was necessary. Now, Jesse was one of the 153 signers and a veteran of the Twitter wars, but says even I was respond. Even I was uh, rather surprised by the response to this letter saying, hey, cancel culture, lighten up because you are killing free speech. And Jesse, uh, Jesse Singal says, I'm not usually a fan of the saying, a hit dog will holler, which usually boils down to if someone responds angrily to an accusation, they're probably guilty. But he says, sometimes when someone is unfairly attacked or wrongly accused, they respond to it with vitriol or other intense emotion. It's only natural. That said, sometimes the expression is useful. If you accuse someone of having an anger management problem and they fly into a terrifying rage, well, a hit dog will holler. And that's exactly what cancel culture did about this open letter, which appeared in which will appear rather in the magazine's October issue, which was a stout defense of liberal values from people primarily on the left at a time when it feels like those values are under threat. And simply the letter said that in addition to this threat of canceling, you know, people's free speech in the name of some, you know, dogmatic, uh, you know, we have to all have uniformity of thought. They defended the free exchange of information and ideas, which they called the lifeblood of a liberal society and said cancel culture is causing this to daily become more constricted. 
And these signers said, well, we've come to expect this on the radical right. Censoriousness is spreading more widely in our culture and intolerance of opposing views a vogue for public shaming and ostracism and the tendency to dissolve complex policy issues in a blinding moral certainty. We uphold the value of robust, even caustic counter speech from all quarters, but it's now all too common to hear calls for swift and severe retribution in response to perceived transgressions of speech and thought. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, well, you know, maybe I maybe I fall to the political left and I should be safe there. You're not. Maybe you think if I just stay quiet, this is never going to affect me. That's not going to work either. You've got a bunch of speech regulators who are very humorless, obnoxious, and as Tyler Cowen says, neurotic, at least in the personality psychology sense of that word. He says, I say, let's complain about the real problem, namely the moral fiber, emotional temperaments, and factual worldviews of individuals who have arrogated the new new speech censorship functions to themselves. Pretty crazy stuff. John Stossel, by the way, has a terrific article. I got this off of uh, everythingvoluntary.com. Cancel culture is out of control. And he gives you some stories. And I think these stories are important because they put the human face to the issue at hand. And John Stossel reports how the online mob came for Harold Ulich. What terrible thing had he done? Well, as John shows in his new video, Harold Ulich tweeted that Black Lives Matter torpedoed itself with its full-fledged support of hashtag defund the police. Instead of defunding, Ulick suggested, train the police better. Hundreds of people then signed a petition to demand that Ulick, a University of Chicago professor and head of the Journal of Political Economy, resign. Even prominent economists like Janet Yellen and Paul Krugman joined the, the mob. Krugman called Ulick another privileged white man who evidently cannot control his urge to belittle the concerns of those less fortunate. Harumph. Okay, the harumph was mine. But John Stossel says that's just a lie. Ulick wasn't belittling the concerns of anyone less fortunate. Reason Magazine senior editor Robbie Suave said there was nothing racist or discriminatory in how Ulick said what he said. Suave covers the new woke protests. But he points out because Ulick has some different views from the protesters, the conclusion, well, he must be a racist. So Ulick was placed on leave by the journal he ran. See, the new totalitarians demand no one criticize their view of the world. The online mob even attacks its fellow Democrats. David Shore, an analyst at Democratic polling firm Civis Analytics, rather, tweeted a study that concluded race riots reduced the Democratic vote share. Now, that study was probably accurate. Obviously, rioting alienates voters. But the mob attacked Shore. Come get your boy, one tweeted, and his bosses did. Even though Shore issued a groveling apology, he was fired. And again, Robbie Suave points out there's a cruel streak in activism that says, if you disagree with me, you have no right to speak. And John Stossel says, why are they winning? Their argument is ridiculous. And Suave explains people are afraid to challenge them. It takes just one employee at one company to say, here's the law that protects my rights to feel safe and comfortable in this workplace. If you're not going to make me feel safe and comfortable, I'm going to get you in trouble. And so cowardly corporations cave. A Boeing executive was forced out for opposing women's service in the military 30 years ago. A Los Angeles soccer team fired a player because his wife posted racist comments. Michigan State pushed out a physicist when a Twitter mob from its graduate employees union labeled him a scientific racist. 
Okay, so what racist thing had the physicist done? Well, he rejected the idea that scientists should categorically exclude the possibility of average genetic differences among groups. At least that's how the Wall Street Journal explained it. Now cancel culture has actually moved abroad. You've got to Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling being smeared as transphobic. When a tax researcher was fired for saying identifying as a woman does not make a person a woman, Rowling tweeted incredulously, force women out of their jobs for stating that sex is real? Now, she said she has nothing against trans people, but she's concerned about the huge explosion in young women wishing to transition. And the Twitter mob proclaimed her, quote, hate was killing trans people. Some staff at Hatchet, her publisher, refused to work on her next book. Actors in her Harry Potter movies spoke out against her. But to her credit, J.K. Rowling did not back down. She said, it isn't hate to speak the truth. Rather, she tweeted, it isn't hate to speak the truth. And she also mocked a charity that used the phrase, people who menstruate, instead of women. Tweeting, you know, there used to be a word for those people. Someone help me out. Wumban? Wimpun? Wumud? And that just further incensed the mob. It claims her hate leads to trans women, especially teens and black trans women, becoming victims of sexual assault. Wow, that is quite an accusation. But as John Stossel points out, Rowling is the rare person popular enough to be able to resist the mob. Her publisher spoke up for her, saying freedom of speech is the cornerstone of publishing. By the way, University of Chicago stood up to the mob, too. The school, after a 10-day investigation, announced there was no basis for taking away Harold Ulick's job. And he's been reinstated. As John Stossel says, that's how these cases should be handled. The solution is to challenge these people, says Suave. We just have to speak up. And John Stossel says, those of us who can, must. And that is why I am sharing this story with you today. Because there will be opportunities. I promise you, there will be opportunities where you can stand up and speak up on behalf of someone who is being unjustly accosted by the cancel culture mob. And it may be someone who you may philosophically disagree with. It may be somebody you don't stand shoulder to shoulder with ideologically. Can I suggest it's still in our interest to stand up for their right to speak freely, to write what they want to write. And to not cave to the demands of the mob. Don't take satisfaction when the mob goes after them. Defend them. And pray that people will come and defend you in your moment of need should the mob ever turn its fury on you. That's how it works. This is The Brian Hyde Show.